0: Let's pray to that Jesus. Let's run to him this morning together. Father, we can always do this. We can always run to Jesus. Your hands are wide open to us. But we are forgetters. We forget about all that you have done for us. We forget that you our God alone. We forget that without you we can do nothing. And so great God, this morning every thought of you encourages our hearts. Your great love comforts us. We, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit and we have fellowship with each other because of this perfect work that Jesus has done on our behalf. And quite frankly, dear Savior, you have been so loving and merciful towards us. How could we not do everything that we can do to live and be of the same mind and heart with you? And how could we not love one another when we see the magnificent grace and mercy you have bestowed upon our hearts? Forgive us, Lord, this morning for the times when we have thought more about how everyone else has failed us rather than how we have failed them. Forgive us for complaining that we have to serve again instead of believing it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Forgive us this morning for being angry at you and holding grudges. And anger towards one another. It is you who have forgiven all of our sins. It is you that have forgiven us. It is you who have been kind and strong and faithful to us. Father, make it our joy in life to overlook an offense. God, please bring to our minds any and all things that might hinder our fellowship with you and our fellowship with one another. And grant us a superabundance of your amazing grace that we may melt in sight of your glory and holiness and submit our hearts joyfully. We feel our frailty. We feel that we are very weak. And Lord, we are sin-weary this morning. The battle has been fierce this week with our own souls, and there are perhaps a few here who are just in some kind of a spiritual coldness and seeking some way out. Lord, have mercy on us this morning. Oh God, look on us as a church. Look on us as your people. And grant to us the necessary grace that we need. Grant to us this divine Christ-like humility that through that we receive the grace to help us overcome our sins. God, grant us grace or to compensate for our, our natural weaknesses and give us grace to give space to others who also show weakness around us. Oh, Father. Give us the concern to love one another with discernment and wisdom. Help us to fulfill our responsibilities, to care for one another. Father, you have loved us even as you have loved your son. And we have been transformed by this love and mercy. And God, I pray that you would grant us today your power, and your presence. And Father, do the same in churches around our city this morning. May the word of God go forth with power and with might. Lord, run the word to the hearers. Cause them to hear, spiritually hear what you're saying. And Lord, transform their lives. Lord, I can't help but think that you would do this today at Paramount Church with Pastor Rush Witt in Bexley. And Father, we can't help but you would do that today in the country of Indonesia through the people like our own, our own missionaries, Nick and Julia Brown. Father, run the gospel there. Bring people from all tongues, all tribes, all nations. And Lord, as we would gather someday to be the bride of our dear Savior, God, would you continue to gather these people through the message of the gospel this morning? run it to our hearts. We pray. Show us where to change and show us how to live. In Christ, you glorify your name and your love in our church this morning. And this we ask in the name of the one who has granted us perfect righteousness by grace, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Take your Bibles with me this morning on a normal Sunday morning. We would be in 1 Peter, but this is not a normal Sunday morning. This is an abnormal Sunday morning. I don't know what a normal Sunday morning is. but I mentioned already that the reason that we're doing this little switch-up, I don't necessarily like doing the switch-ups because I love keep to keep going through. And I always, always am amazed that as we walk through a book, how God arranges a particular message for a particular time. And so I'm always hesitant to pull away from that. But today I feel like it's, it's really good for us. And last time we actually stopped during the month of March, I think it was three years ago, to talk about church leadership. And so I'm going like, it's, it's time to do that. And so we need to do that. If you're in the Foundations class, this will be nothing new. Um, if you've taken the Foundations class, you will have heard some of this already. But I do think it's, it's great for us to refresh ourselves, especially as we look forward to perhaps bringing on um, a couple new folks in leadership, I hope you're praying for your leadership every week it 's a battle um, you know this in your own soul in your own heart and if it's if it 's true in your heart it 's true with us collectively as well and so it's very important that we have good and godly leadership so i 'm writing we're speaking today on the necessity of godly leadership. It's not just a nice thing. It is a necessity. It's something that we must give ourselves to. So I want us to look two places that the Apostle Paul teaches us about elders. One is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This one in particular is in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. This is the, most, the more succinct one, so we will look at this this morning. Read with me uh, from Titus chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. Five. Paul is writing to Titus We really don't know much about Titus um, Other than he was a fine servant of Paul um, I, I look forward to meeting guys like this I had a neat opportunity this week to meet uh, a Titus This is someone that no one hardly ever heard of This guy was just sitting um, at a table in the morning I stopped by and said, hey, are you, he was reading his Bible And I said, are you preparing for Sunday? And he looked up and he was like no, actually, um, I'm not preaching this Sunday. And I'm like, oh, great. I, I, are, you, are you a pastor? He goes like, well, I am now. And I go like, what does that mean? Uh, long story. He was a science teacher, uh, a longtime science teacher. And God, through the moving of his heart, brought him into uh, becoming now a youth pastor. And his pastor actually resigned recently because of an illness. And so now he is the pastor, but he wasn't speaking that particular week. And I had a wonderful time just to sit and encourage him. Um, I felt like he was, he was a Titus. Nobody knew. He said, like, I, he didn't even have a name tag on it. I said, well, you don't even have a name tag. He goes, ah, yeah, I forgot it. And I'm going like, so, and so you're no one, right? You're, you're no one without a name tag. You're just a no one. Um, so, but he, he, we laughed, had a good time, and, and, I, and I had prayer for him right there. I love Tituses. I love guys like that. So, Let's read together, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. For over four decades now, I've been part of a church work in some fashion or another. Um, I, I, I wrote that this week, and I'm like, four decades, wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, it's scary, too, that I'm getting that old. Um, but it seems now more than ever it is so necessary to have leadership in the church who love God passionately and live for God purposefully or intentionally. The impact of good godly leadership in the realm of the church body cannot be underestimated. Good men demonstrating Christ in all areas of their lives have a powerful impact on each member of the body. And Paul understands this and specifically calls on Titus to follow a strict plan that he seems to have worked out for the churches that he had started, and for some reason he didn't have time to incorporate it, in particularly in the church there of Crete. Wouldn't you love to be a pastor on the island of Crete? i mean, like, what a, what a neat opportunity that would be. So he calls on Titus to follow this plan, and the job he left for Titus is somewhat different than he left for Timothy, Timothy's church needed a reformation. So the, the book of Ephesians is a, is a great guide, and so he sets out to help reform that church. But in Crete, Titus was instructed to actually finish what Paul had actually started, but left undone, and namely, appointment of elders in the various churches all over the island. And, and as I see it, godly men play an important role in helping a church maintain its spiritual help. Uh, spiritual health, and makes room for a genuine spiritual vitality that should permeate the atmosphere of the church. It could be said, and I think it's true, as it goes in the hearts of the elders and the deacons, so it goes in the heart of the people. So this is not something that we should just give a casual glance to. This is very important. But there are two parts of the leadership's impact. And when I say leadership, that's the combined two offices of the elders and the deacon. First of all, as we will see as it unfolds, there's a preventative nature to their work. I mean, they are to lead, they are to teach, they are to speak the words of God into the lives who are under the care with a goal of preventing spiritual maladies, spiritual sickness, as it were. And so there's this idea that what they do, is, a, is a, a bolstering to the overall health and the nurturing of the body of believers. And this is why Paul urges Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 to keep a close watch on yourself and on your doctrine. And he says it again in Titus here, that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word in verse 9 so that they may be able to help instruct others in sound teaching. And I love this last part. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. So their own lives are work as a preventative in the life of the church. And then there's a second part. There's a curative nature to their work. It brings health. It, it cures. Uh, it brings a cure, as it were. And once again, it is Paul speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy, as he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for this curation to take place, as it were. How? Well, through teaching, through reproof, through correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's our goal that we grow mature individuals who understand God, understand His Word, and give themselves to it, and they become mature in it. We don't want immature believers. So their lives should bring healing into the people of God. And they do so through the means of the word of God taught. The word of God to reprove. The word of God to correct. And even training God's people in what seems or what is a means to live out Christ's righteousness is given to us. It's an amazing amount of correctional work that Paul had to do with his own church plants. And it, and it, it wasn't that, that Paul was ineffective as a, as a church planter at planting healthy churches, but what we see is a pattern of decay and wrong teaching that can creep in very quickly. And it does so much damage that Paul wasn't going to take any chances with these new churches, particularly in Crete. You see, God is concerned about leadership, which means he's also concerned about what we call here, followship. It's kind of one of my favorite words. There's leadership and there's followership. So Paul here outlines here in Titus and in 1 Timothy what godly leadership looks like. And they're essentially a list of qualifications for both the office of the elder and the office of deacon. There are two offices. There are not three. There isn't pastor, elder, deacon. I'm simply an elder. We use the title as a way of describing that there's two of us that actually make our living pastoring. The rest of those, the rest of the elders make their living doing other stuff. And yet they come and they help us. And the deacons the same way. But both are vital that they exist in the church and both elders and deacons are vital that they be qualified. But that typically means a couple of things that I want us to just, as, we, as we've read through this, I just want to talk a few observations and then take a little bit of time and go through each of the qualifications. I want us to notice the nature Of of these qualifications and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And what the nature of the qualifications mean is that, first of all, they are moral qualities or qualities of a high moral character. That is an integrity of life that rings true over an extended period of time. This speaks of the work of Christ in their hearts not just their words that they would say. There's no way any man could ever have the kind of moral quality that he's talking about here if Christ isn't in them and working through them. There's moral qualities. Secondly, they are marks of leadership. And the idea here is it means that they demonstrate a man's capacity to lead others, and the fact is, it's seen by the fact that others will follow them. And there's this relationship that both are needed. The fellowship needs leadership, and the leadership needs fellowship. And so they give to one another this way. You see, the narrow path that God calls genuine believers to walk is one that have life guides. they're called shepherds. They have life guides who can maneuver down this path and help us all walk down the, the narrow path that God has given to us. It is a narrow path. Narrow paths are not as easy to, to walk on. I, I, I saw this this week on Thursday after I finished my examination. I was feeling the, the weight of the world off my shoulders. And so they, so one of the guys said, well, "You know, what are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to go to Disney World." I, I'm just kidding. I, that's not what I said. I, but, I, but I, I thought about that. I thought, "No, yeah, that would be fun." But instead, I wanted to go for a run. So I asked around where I could find a, a, a good. Uh, Path something like around a lake and a park and of course I'm thinking this is southern California right this would be wonderful the sun is out it was the only day that the sun was out really and it was kind of warm and I thought man I can go in my shorts and run and not have to worry about being cold that would be great and I and the guy goes like well you need to go to Balboa Park are you familiar with Balboa Park where that is okay so I was, I was like, okay, well, that's good. I looked it up, and sure enough, there's a lake there. And he says, there's wide open trails there. And I'm, and I'm going, like, oh, this is going to be good. So it was like where I was, like a half-hour drive. I pulled in, and I'm like, okay, it's not as green and pretty as I had in mind. You know, no one's out there playing golf here, you know, or anything like that. And certainly the, 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 the path was, was wide, but it was messed with um, geese waste. And so the path ended up being very narrow. I was running like this. <laughs> I was like, oh. And, and it was dry and not green and crusty. And the wind was blowing. And you could see these little whirlwinds of dust. And I, you know, I was just like, but I ran four miles. I said, I don't care. I'm just going to run. I'm just going to run. But the idea here is that the the path that God has given to us is narrow. And we need help walking that path. And that's the idea that the elders give and the the, the deacons give. Thirdly, I I think there's there's another mark here. There's there's a primary mark of spiritual maturity. And what this simply means is as you walk through these things, their life bears the mark of one who has grown in Christ, he's weathered some storms. He has experienced experienced personally the life-changing power of the Lord in dealing with their own sinfulness and turning from sin in such a way that the Spirit of God and the Word of God is is noticed in their lives. Their lives indicate, in every area of their life, God is God. doesn't mean that they're perfect. It just means that God is God. And so whatever God sends to them, They're given to it. God's word is their ruling guide. And God's glory is their goal. And then fourthly, I want you to just notice that these qualifications are aspired to by men. You wouldn't think we would have to say that, but in our day and time, elders, and we here at Calvary Bible Church feel like deacons are men. by God's design, men. So, that's some of the things, just just an observation. We've not gotten into the weeds yet, but by observing the nature of these qualifications, then what does it not mean? What does it not mean? And I just want to list several quickly. First of all, godly leadership is not driven by personality. And you have to be very careful of this. There are no personality requirements here. I'm very grateful for that. So you can't look at that in your own list of priorities. Well, it seems like this guy would be a deacon or this guy would be an elder. And you're going by personality. No, it's, it's the fact that it is something to consider their personality, to be sure. But keep in mind that God uses all kinds of men and all kinds of personalities to do his work. That's a variety. And I, and I think that has to be underscored and learned and understood secondly godly leadership is not driven by mere giftedness the office of both elder and deacons are servant roles and so they serve and usually they will exhibit a a particular giftedness to do their work but some are more gifted than others so we don't get into the business of comparing servants are people who serve and you don't need a lot of gifts to serve They just serve. I think it's important that you understand, too, that godly leadership is not driven by seminary education. Nowhere in this list of things do we see any level of education. They are to be apt to teach, and they need to not be novices in Scripture, as we will see, Um, but they also have to be able to defend the flock and protect the flock. And what better place to learn this than a sound biblical seminary, but it is not necessary that they have a degree, a seminary degree. These qualifications are not driven then by knowledge or skill. And thirdly, godly leadership is not driven by age. There's no set age given here or anywhere else in Scripture. You can learn and observe that Christ was around 30 when he entered into public ministry and in a place where the age of pastors could have been addressed. He doesn't address it. Now, there are specific advantages and disadvantages to both young elders and older elders. Whatever that looks like to you. I don't know what young elders look like to you. I feel like I'm a young elder. You guys laugh at that. I said I feel like it. I didn't say I was. And then godly leadership is not driven by administration or procedure. I mean, there's no prescribed methods to appointing elders. There are no prescribed numbers of elders to be appointed or deacons. But what is obvious is the description and the prescription of character of the biblical leadership. They simply imply that God has intended for a group of men to lead his church, his bride for his son, in a way that demonstrates Godly character. So let's look carefully this morning and quickly. I might add at the general qualifications. Look with me again in verse five. It says, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you would put what I uh, put, that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you." The overarching character quality that should reveal itself as an elder, as he says it, and he says it twice. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, then he says it again in verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. This word above reproach simply means blameless. It is a Greek word that literally talks about the fact that this is without a person who's without indictment or accusation. He is unchargeable. You could throw a charge at them, but that charge would not stick. He is one who has nothing that can be brought against him. And this word stands at the head of the list as a general or broad umbrella quality that covers the whole of the elder's life. The qualifications that follow kind of give the details of what blamelessness looks like, but it also demonstrates where the tests for blamelessness will occur is not a man who is perfect for that would disqualify everyone but it is someone who life depicts an unchargeable character that holds up under scrutiny in every area over time and this is a staggering statement but it's one that is often excused and overlooked it is this general statement that is then defined in three areas and we will look at them in these three areas home life personal life and public life and all of these areas overlap and are uniquely connected to each other if one area is out of kilter the other areas will soon follow and what a man is in all three of these areas are li- are really vital to the overall spiritual vitality of the of the church so this is not to be toyed with this is something to look at very seriously so let's look in the first area his, home, his life at home. And you see this in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The truth is there is no more difficult place to live in an open, transparent, and blameless life than to do so at home. Your theology Speaks loudest At home This is one of the things I told Titus, his name is Jesse It's Titus in my head But it's Jesse I told Jesse this week I said alright I'm leaving but I'm just going to give you two things One Love your wife And love your children And then go to, go to work Um, That was three things, but it was two things in particular. So it's the place where our own spiritual vitality is first seen. And so the first one is a one-woman man. And this phrase has come under question by many scholars, has been interpreted several ways. Some interpret it no divorce, some interpret it only one wife, which would exclude a single man or a widower, or no polygamy. Or simply, he must remain true and faithful to one woman, his wife. And today, more than ever, it seems that it is easy to find men who are married to one woman, but are always letting their mind's eye wander to another woman. And the elder should be blameless in his love and devotion to the one woman. So we think, we see it as the idea here, that there's just a devotion to one woman. And that's... The qualification there that goes past the the reality of of physical nature but it goes into the heart and the mind and the desires the elder should be blameless in his love and devotion to one woman and then he goes to that to relationship with children and i would tell you they're connected The children of the elders should be faithful and their lives should not bring a reproach upon the cause and the name of Christ. This is a very difficult one because in many ways we're never in complete control of our children. But it does say something to the effect of the lives lived out in front of the children day in and day out. And one writer says it this way, to find out if a man is qualified for leadership in the church look first at his influence on his own children if you want to know if he is able to lead the unsaved to faith in christ and to help them grow in obedience and holiness simply examine the effectiveness of his own efforts with his own children and the statement becomes very difficult to maneuver through in particular when a child through their young adulthoodness goes through a stage of rebellion i had three children and all three of our children went through various stages at times where you're just going like, Oh, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? And once again, it's not that, that, uh, that the elder must have perfect children. But the man's leadership is one of discipling the heart of his own children. And I will tell you for me personally, I found that the sin in the life of my children was always a good time For me and for Cindy and Cindy and me to personally repent. Because in many ways our lives taught those sins to our children. And then they created their own sin. But that effect is there. And that's what he's getting at here. Children, more than anything else, need to see a father. And a mother grow and change in the humility of Christ. So this is a very important consideration. And we as parents get to do this every day. We get to grow and change in our understanding of grace and our understanding of faith and repent in that way. So our relationship with our children. And then we go to the personal life, verses seven through eight. and this is where it becomes pretty personal. You see, no man is an island. And this is especially true of an elder or deacon. Nowhere will you see the impact of a person more than in the realm of the body of believers, because character does matter. And Paul says it again it is necessary then that the overseers be blameless. And I think he's thinking here both the deacon and the elder, he calls them both overseers. Why? Because your life is not about you, you are a steward. You've been given responsibility. You've been given people. You've been given things. You're a steward. You belong to God. And the ministry is his ministry. It belongs to Jesus. This is his bride. So it's not about you, but it is about you. In his personal life, Paul tells us what his personal life, first of all, isn't. And so he says, look with me in verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He's not arrogant. Of course, the implication is he must be humble. It's our word that sometimes helps us understand what hedonism, hedonism comes from this word. It literally means to seek one's pleasure, to be self-seeking, to be self-willed, or to be obstinate in one's own opinion. Not arrogant. Have you ever met a person who always has to have his own way? And whether it is a family matter, a church matter, or a business matter, this kind of person is seldom willing to give, give up his own desires for the sake of a group. And this kind of person goes on and he begrudgingly Succumbs to the pressure of those around him and he says, Okay, but I don't think it's the best way to do it. I don't think it's the way I should do it, but it's the best, it's not, it's this, if this is, or I don't think this is the best idea, so I'll just give myself to it. In short, a self willed man builds his own world around himself. He is self centered and wants to do as he pleases. And what Paul says here is he's not arrogant. That's not an elder. Secondly, he says, in verse 7, it it goes on, and he says, or quick-tempered, not quickly prone to anger. And what it means is that he's long-suffering. He's long-suffering. It refers to one who sits long. Quick-tempered man is not one who will sit long. If you don't like something, you unload on those around you until you get your way. No, an elder is able to suffer long. He's able to wait. And this means that he doesn't let things build up inside that will annoy him. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews twelve fifteen. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And you could say, especially as an elder or a deacon, that you are a person who pursues the grace of God. And so he says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it b- many become defiled. And so the emphasis here is that root of bitterness comes and not only affects that person, but around, people around them. So the impact is huge when someone who is, who is prone to anger and not long-suffering Thirdly, he deals with the idea of being drunk. Did you see that? Look at verse 7. Not a drunkard. Not a drunkard, but is self-controlled. It refers to one who sits long at his wine. Once again, it's this idea of sitting long. It becomes intoxicated and under its control rather than the Spirit of God that we talk about in Ephesians 5.18. So this is not a place, we don't have time today or space to deal with the issue of whether or not Christians should drink alcoholic beverages. That's not what we're doing here today. But a few observations are in order. First of all, please understand that Paul does not forbid the use of wine or teach total abstinence. He even told Timothy to take a little wine for health reasons, and yes, that was wine, First Timothy 5.23. But second, in other places, he warns about the misuse of a believer's freedom in such matters and in other words there are times when it is good not to eat meat or to drink or to do anything that might cause another believer to stumble so the idea here is that you you look around you and you make decisions based on God's glory and thirdly scripture speaks on the issue of drinking wine and strong drink and it often comes in form of a warning so just know that Because being addicted to wine is just one of the many escape mechanisms that people use to deal with their problems or their unhappiness or their pain. It can be a mechanism of deadening ourselves to the pain that God has allowed into our life to conform our hearts to Christ. And so giving ourselves to self-control means we also address our eating habits as well as our drinking habits that we're not finding comfort in something other than Christ alone but notice also with the drunkenness comes this violence not violent but is trusting god a violent man is one who doesn't exhibit self-control a violent man is one who gives in to the feelings in that are sinful But this man is not violent, and so he trusts God for vengeance. He trusts God for retribution, or merely to settle the dispute. He's willing to wait and to trust God. A pugnacious man is one who will use words to fight and not fists alone. And I've seen pugnacious pastors. Settling conflicts is a part of the job of an elder and a deacon. If he's prone to aggressive behavior, it demonstrates a lack of confidence that God will handle things. So when conflicts arise, an elder must make sure they are handled peacefully, reasonably, and without animosity or bitterness. And I'll tell you, at times, it becomes very difficult. Because often there's personal hurt involved. And the, and the man must die. Know how to die to that in order to see God's glory at work. And then not greedy. It's the last one that's given to us here. Not greedy for gain. He's dealing with contentment here. Paul is talking about people who entered into the ministry with the idea. I, I know that there are people like this. I don't get it. But they come into the ministry with the idea of making easy money in a deceitful way that lacks integrity. That's what he's dealt with there and believe it or not, it happens in our world today. But an elder and a deacon, a leadership of a church, should find their hearts to be content. And contentment is a serious matter of faith in God. Because God knows what he's doing. And can I, can I find contentment there? So there's not a greed, not this covetousness, but there's a contentment. And then public life, and we'll go through this we'll, very quickly this morning. And here's where the true life of the believer is seen. You see, the reality is, as elders and deacons, and and they hear me say this frequently, our lives preach. But what is the message of the life of someone who leads our Savior's bride? What is that message? What does it look like? Well, several things here. First of all, hospitable. This is the idea of a lover of strangers. This is a person who values people and opens them into his home. There's this openness and giving. This is why we have shepherd groups. We want to model this idea of hospitality and caring for people. Secondly, loves what is good. Do you see that in verse nine or or verse eight? Hospitable, a lover of what is good. He seeks, or pursues, and enjoys that which benefits, that which builds up in all of life, in thoughts and in deeds. They love what is good, what is right. It shows up in his choices in life and his love for others. Love to think on things that are right and good and thus helpful to others. And will not then think on things that are detriment to others. Loves what is good. And then the next one is, is peculiar, I think, in some ways. Lover of good. Self-controlled. Self-controlled. I don't mean peculiar in a bad way. I use this idea of sensibility, what he's talking about here. A self-controlled person makes good choices, sees balance, discerns, controls the extremes, is sober-minded, is cool-headed, is not easily distracted. This is a person who has good people giving input into his life. He sees things as they really are without the extremes. He finds it wise for people to give input, and he goes and searches for input because he's self-controlled. He's sensible in that way. And then the next one that he gives to us here is upright. This is the idea of just does what is proper, does what is right and fitting. I I call this reads their environment well. It's appropriate behavior at appropriate times. There are times to laugh, and then there are times to refrain from laughing, Solomon says. And a wise man understands that and gives himself to it. And then holy. This is the idea of devout personal holiness, a careful reserve that speaks of a marked walk with God who knows how to repent this is a person who willingly sees his sin and turns from it, and then finally disciplined, this is the idea of self-controlled again I think Peter, I think this shows that Peter struggled in this area as he brings it up several times this is not an external thing but this is a person who is in has inward integrity that can say no to sin and to flesh with no one around. His thoughts are in order in private ways. He's not driven by pain. He's not driven by fear of man. He's disciplined. And then finally, and probably the most important or one of the most important things, he's a gifted teacher. And he says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. This is where we get our wisdom. This is where we get our ability to make decisions. This is the, the marked difference between an elder and a deacon is that they're gifted teachers. But this goes past the spiritual character at this point, and he points to what this man does best, that he teaches by life and by word. And so you'll hear the two V's here that I use. There's a visual preaching, and there's a verbal preaching of a message. And the emphasis here is that the teaching is reliable, it's trustworthy, in relationship to scripture doesn't mean that they are going to possibly get every single exegesis exactly correct. But you can tell that there's a striving to make it correct. There's a a work and a humility that puts himself under the Word so that when the Word is taught, it's as accurately as that man knows how to be. It's not wandering, but but it's precise, it's clear, it's straightforward, and withstands scrutiny. And because it is God's word, it exhorts and corrects. And it corrects the lives of the hearers. You see, you read and you study these these strong, these, these very strong characteristics, and you get this, you can get this sense of being overwhelmed, and it leads us to the question, who can do this? I mean, who can possibly do this? Who is up to this kind of challenge? Well, there's only one. Who has done it and was perfect at it. This is the God-man Jesus himself. He came and his life was the perfect integrity. His life was completely dedicated to obeying the Father's will. His perfections lived in us then becomes our means of obedience. Truly we can do nothing without him. It truly is what it means that our hope is in Christ alone. That his death becomes our means for life. His obedience put him to death, and then he is our pattern for life in order that we might die so that others may live. And this is what makes the church such a special and unique place. Because dying becomes the way of living for its leadership and its fellowship. We live in order to die so that others would live around us but this is not only true for the elder and the deacon but for all who have placed their faith in Christ alone for your salvation now there are two errors that can happen when considering each elder and deacon for the office one we overexpect that they be perfect that they have all the answers and that they never do things that you disagree with or we under expect and just let everything go Neither of these areas, errors bring genuine spiritual vitality because there's no grace, there's no mercy that's infused in all of that. It's me, I'm getting it right. And so I think it becomes very important that each time we come to affirm our leadership that we look reasonably at each man and answer this question, is this man qualified? And the current elders think this man is qualified, which is why we are asking you to affirm them. But truthfully, if you think in some way they are not qualified, then we ask our people to do the hard thing because you care about the bride of Christ and you have a conversation with your existing elder and you begin to let us know the reason that you're thinking that they are not qualified. And if your reason is a sound, legitimate, biblical reason for the sake of our ministry, we must know But if it's merely a hunch, or just your gut, then I would suggest you talk personally with the candidate so that you can resolve whatever issue you think is there. I just don't like him. Okay? But that doesn't disqualify him because so-and-so doesn't like him. You probably need to learn to like him, perhaps. Perhaps. So, application to all of us. Because you're sitting here going like, I'm not going to be an elder or a deacon. How does this concern me? Well, there is no one who is a child of God that these things should not also be said of you. These are not extra special qualifications. These are just very basic qualifications. So how is God working these things in your life? Are you blameless at home? Not are you perfect, but can your children look up into your eyes and know that here's one who's repenting? Or do they see a very bitter and angry and a caustic, quick tempered individual? You're not self controlled in some area, prone to violence even, or maybe just greed. Do you love strangers? Do you find it fun to have unexpected guests here among us? I do. I I delight in that. It's fun. Do you enjoy what is good? Are you making good decisions? Are you getting input? Are you living in a just way, doing what is right? Are you pursuing Christ and his righteousness in you And thus, are you self-controlled? And are you using the word as a guide to teaching and exhortation in life? Are you being exhorted? Or do you have to have all the answers? And you push people out of your life because you have all the answers. Instead of allowing them access to your heart and saying, Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep them until the end. This is what makes the church, frankly, the place to be. You're not going to, you should not, you you won't get this kind of care where you work. Most people have their own agenda. But here at the church, our agenda is Christ's agenda. And so it's a different set of priorities. So these become very, very important. And my prayer is that you will be people of prayer. And I know you are because you prayed for me this past week. And I am very grateful for that. I could sense your prayers. I sensed the ease of the entire thing was amazing to me, and the joy that God gave was amazing to me. But that's because you folks intervened and prayed on my behalf. Will you do that? Even now, as we look forward to two things March, new leadership, April, new budget. It's always that time of year. It's the time of year that I lose the most hair time of year that I get the most nervous um, and it's the time of year that I step back every time and go like wow isn't God good so rejoice God's been very kind to us we have a number of men that God has given to us and what's even more fun is the fact that there are more coming that we're training already and we see the the importance of training and leadership and so we joy that Will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, uh, those qualifications are a steep mountain for sinful humans to climb. But instead of us feeling like I must do it all, we have a Savior who has done it all. And on the cross, He yelled out, It is finished. And included in that was everything that it took for our righteousness to be obtained. And he has granted it to those who would believe and repented and placed their trust into Christ. So Father, I do pray for our men. I pray for our fathers. I pray for our husbands. I pray for our single men. I pray for our young boys who are growing up in this crazy world. And Lord, they're pulled all over the place to come and pursue their own desires, their own ways and I pray Father that you would, you would grant them faith and repentance that they may trust you but Lord as adults we need that as well we need your mercies and the good news is we have it so really all we need is Christ, that's all we need and we have him and what a joy and a privilege it is to serve the one true God. You be our God today and let our hearts rejoice. We pray in Christ's name, amen.